Father, give us that kind of faith as we continue in worship. Open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to your word. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. If you read my blog on our website this week, which I'm sure all of you did, though just in case there were one or two of you that missed it, I wrote about those moments in life and history that are cemented into our minds. You know, those times where you remember where you were and what you were doing and who was with you when those things took place. I remember through the years hearing people say, I remember where I was when I heard the news about Pearl Harbor. Or, I know exactly what I was doing when I got word that President Kennedy had been shot. I was not quite 10 years old, but I can, I can remember sitting in our den with the family and friends watching the television that Sunday afternoon as Neil Armstrong took one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind. I, um, I'm pretty sure September 11th, 2001 is another one of those moments. Those moments when we remember where we were and what we were doing and how the news came to us. It's, it's cemented in our minds. I was talking with some folks this week about that very thing. And, you know, someone said, well, I was at a garage getting my car fixed in Olean. Another person was standing at a bus stop and word came to them. Another person was actually in Manhattan. Someone else was uh, just said I was sitting in my office. I was talking with uh, Suzanne Brenneman Beersley earlier this week, and we were just kind of talking through this because she was in cadet training for NYPD at that time. And, you know, here this has happened. They aren't t- done with their training yet and basically said, here's some stuff, go out there and help, you know. It was everybody all hands on deck and and, and you just, you know, all of it. I mean, it was interesting to me as she was describing what was happening, the details that uh, she remembers that are just so cemented. And those of you who are in kaleidoscope at the Sunday school hour heard her share some of that story. You know, memories are coming back to us now as we are commemorating the 10th anniversary of that tragic, heart-wrenching, unbelievable event. I think it's important for us to remember and important for us to grieve with those who lost family and friends on that day. It's important for us to remember and to grieve the loss of, I don't know, innocence. The loss of a sense that something like that could never happen on American soil. I think it's important for us to remember and to grieve all the pain that this event has subsequently led to in this nation and in nations throughout the world. Our world is changed since that day we live as we discovered we knew this you know we knew this before that but i think on that day it it solidified this this truth that we live in a chaotic out of control crazy scary evil world that was so evident 10 years ago today and it's no less evident 10 years later and that's part of why I, I was thinking about this morning. I, I wanted to go back to Psalm 46 because 
On the Sunday after September 11th, 10 years ago, that was the passage we looked at. And it seemed to me that that word that was important for us to hear then is no less important for us to hear now. When I read this psalm, you get a clear understanding that the psalmist understands the kind of world in which we live. Because it's his world too. Psalm 46 describes the the chaos of our world in imagery that is eerily reminiscent of 2001 and, and some of the disasters that have taken place in the world since then. Psalm 46 speaks of the earth giving way, mountains falling into the heart of the sea, waters roaring and foaming and everything quaking. It's a frightening scene and it it grabs our attention. It's a scene of chaos and fear, of uncertainty. And there's a certain part of us that kind of resonates with that. We get that. We, We understand that more perhaps now than we ever did. The images are so descriptive of our world that it draws us in. But the image of a troubled world isn't the focus of the psalm. The focus of the psalm is not the destruction or the frightening events or the pain from them. The focus of the psalm is God. Who reveals himself in the midst of all of the things that frighten us. All of the difficulties and struggles and pain that comes to us. The 46th Psalm, uh, Psalmist wants us to understand that no matter what may be taking place in this world or in our lives, the one constant is God. The one source of refuge from the storm is God. God is our strength in time of weakness and God is our hope when it feels as though things are hopeless. We often wrestle with the question of why. Why doesn't God rescue us from trouble? You know, we'd like to think that when he says God is our fortress, that that means we're protected from trouble. But the only way God could eliminate trouble from our lives would be to eliminate our free will. And free will is embedded into our created natures. And there are times, certainly, where God does protect us and we give thanks to God for that. Probably far more times than any of us realize But the promise of God is not, I'll keep all trouble away from you. The promise of God is, I will help you in the midst of the trouble. You notice the the promise isn't to eliminate trouble. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. We'd like to think that's different. But the psalmist wants us to understand that when we believe that God is in control, then we can live with a perspective of life isn't always going to be perfect, but we're okay because God is in control. And it becomes enough for us that we don't have to to have life ending all of the problems and troubles. The fact that we know God is in control, that he is almighty, gives us strength and help when the world may be crumbling around us. When we say that God is in control, it's, it's intended to give us a sense of security. But it's also intended to give us a sense of hope. One of the ways in which we experience and, and see God's control is to watch him take the evil events of life and, and the evil events that people do against one another and miraculously bring good out of them. For a long time, the middle part of this psalm was was confusing to me. 
The psalmist talks about mountains falling into the sea. He talks about waters roaring and foaming. And we know something about the, the uncontrollable power of water. We've seen it the last couple of weeks. Just such devastation. And it doesn't matter how seemingly in many places how high the, the levees may have been. The water just breaks through it. And, and we understand that. And in the ancient world and including the scriptures, water and particularly the sea... It is a symbol of chaos. It's a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of all that is against the kingdom of God. And so he says, talks about that chaos in verses 2 and 3. But what intrigues me is that when you get to verse 4, he says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, okay, how does water at the same time be the symbol of chaos and evil and the symbol for joy? It's because God is in control. And the Almighty God can take this water that's intended to destroy and turn it into something that nourishes and blesses and gives life. And God does that all the time. He is the master of taking our selfish acts. He's the master of taking the difficult things that come to us in life and he brings unbelievable good out of them. Now that is not intended to minimize our pain or to say, well... I shouldn't feel upset about this difficulty. I shouldn't grieve the losses that come. Not at all. It's not intended to minimize our pain in any way. The events of 9-11 continue to be a source of grief and pain, I'm sure, for many people. The bombings that take place in so many places of the world almost every day are, are a source of pain and grief. The threats with which so many people live are a source of pain and grief. And the stuff that hurtful words, slanderous comments, the disappointments of life, we grieve those. And and that's okay. It's not intended to eliminate that grief. And neither is it intended to imply that, that God is the cause of these evil things that come to us. But it is a clear declaration that in the midst of them, God is doing something redemptive. And often in ways that we can't see with our human eyes. As I said a few weeks ago, the things that frighten us can actually be an opportunity for us to trust that God is in control. And God doesn't cause evil, but God does use it to change us and to shape us and to turn us back to him. And he uses these things because we tend to be more open to God when we feel needy. We tend to be more open to God when things are crumbling. You see that. You saw it right after 9-11. In the, in the wake of that disaster and the fear and the uncertainty, the churches were filled with people. It's a natural tendency to do that. And sometimes God will allow the difficulties to come to us because he's going to use them to turn us to him. Because in turning us to him and in opening ourselves to him, we are then able to experience all of his blessings that too much of the time we shut ourselves off from because we're so intent on just doing our own thing and forgetting God. We keep looking for answers to the question, why? Why is this happening why, why is this taking place? Why me? And there's something in us that believes if we can answer the why question, it will, it will make us feel better because it will give us a sense of resolution. Okay, I understand why people feel that way. I understand why people would do that. And when something happens that we can't explain, it just eats away at us. We can't quite get it. But the psalmist really has little interest in the why question. 
doesn't give us any indication about why these things may be happening. He's more interested in the how question. How do we get through this? How, how, does this, how is this going to affect us? How is this going it, to work in our lives? And actually, even deeper than the how question is the who question. He keeps bringing us back to God, who is our fortress and our strength and our ever-present help in time of trouble. That phrase, ever-present help in time of trouble, is profound for us to hear. Because it's one thing for God to be our help. It's another thing for God to be with us, helping us. God, God never promises to eliminate trouble. Which is often the result of our sinful choices and our selfishness and and the things that we do to each other. He never promises to eliminate that. And he doesn't promise, he doesn't say that he's going to reject us when we do those things. He doesn't turn from us. Rather, in the midst of all of it, he promises to be with us. And the reality of life is that we tend to sense our need for God and sense the presence of God most clearly when we feel needy. When I read verses 7 to 11, it intrigues me in the way that God identifies himself, or as the psalmist identifies God. He says, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I've read that hundreds and hundreds of times. But it just, the question came to my mind this week, why Jacob? Why is God identifying himself here with Jacob? I mean, I would think he might say the God of Abraham is with us, because Abraham's the guy, Right? I mean, this is the one that, that's held up. This is the great one. Or at least Noah or Moses, you know. Jacob? And Jacob's a conniving schemer. He's a deceiver. Why would God, why would in this context, would he say the God of Jacob? Why identify himself there? I think it's because of all those people. Jacob's life reveals just how needy he is. You know, he has encounters with God not because he is so wonderful, not because he's so righteous, but because he is the poster child for neediness. And God says, I am the God of people who are needy. And I'm with you. And I'm so glad to hear that because I am a needy person and you are a needy person and all of us individually and corporately are needy people. And the God of Jacob, the God of needy people, is with us. Giving us strength. Helping us through the difficulties and the struggles that we deal with in this world. You know, ultimately, everything comes back to the presence of God. The psalm begins with the presence of God. He pauses in the middle to talk to us about the presence of God. He concludes with the presence of God. And, And we are reminded that God's promise is not rescue. God's promise is presence. He promises to be with us. And verses 8 and 9 give us an indication of what can happen in our lives when we begin to open up our lives to the presence of God. He says, come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and he burns the shields with fire. I think this is, this is a, a somewhat of a prophetic word about what the kingdom of God will look like on that day. When we will live in the peace of God. But God is always interested in peace. 
And when God shows up in a circumstance, God does not create turmoil, God creates peace. It might not always look like the kind of peace that we're hoping for, but God is a presence for peace. And people who are followers of God, who have been filled with the Spirit of God, are people who, might, who naturally ought to be a presence for peace as well. And I think the clearest sign that we believe God is in control, truly believe, and that we believe that God is good and that God is at work, even when we might not be able to see it, the clearest indication that we're really on board with that is a willingness to love and to forgive, particularly people who want to harm us. Our New Testament reading, Jesus says to his disciples, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for the happiness of those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Do you think you're going to get credit for just loving those who who are good to you? Everybody does that. And if you do only good to those who do good to you, what's so big about that? I mean, everyone does that. So I'm telling you, love your enemies. And do good to them. And then your reward in heaven will be great. Because you'll be acting as children of the Most High. Now, I got to tell you, when I read that, I don't like that. You know, I don't always want to love people. A lot of times don't want to love people who hate me or who mean harm to me or have done things to injure me. I don't naturally want to love them. But then I remember that the kingdom of God is about not doing, it's not about doing what comes naturally. It's about being so filled with the spirit that we do what Christ does. And it doesn't mean that loving these people and forgiving them means that we agree with everything that they do. I can pretty well guarantee you God doesn't always agree with the things that we do, doesn't like the things that we do, but he loves us anyway. And Jesus says to us here in this passage that this is what sets us apart from everyone else. It's not our morality that sets us apart. It's not our good habits that set us apart. It's love. It always keeps coming back to love. And if hate and and acts of violence are ever going to stop, the stopping has to begin with Christians who are filled with the Spirit of Christ. The behavior of people who have come to believe and embrace That God is in control and we can trust him. And we trust that his way is right. Even when that means that it feels like what we're doing is losing. Because we believe that if if we're living in the spirit of Christ, we're not losing, we're winning. You remember days after the attack, it was a, was a, a terrifying time for many Arab Americans. People wanted to retaliate. People wanted to do something. And many of them were threatened or, or worse. And many of them feared for their very existence. And through the years, that has sort of ebbed and flowed. But I've been reading that there's a, there's a higher degree of fear lately as this, as this day was approaching. And, and wondering if there might be another attack coming, that, that retaliation would come back against them. And maybe all of that in my mind is what made this image that I saw in Christianity Today magazine jump out to me. Here's a picture of two Coptic Christians, and there were more, I think, who are standing guard as Muslims pray when the rioting was going on in Egypt in February. 
I think that's in the spirit of Christ. And it spoke deeply to my heart about how I respond to people who I may disagree with or who I feel like have mistreated me. To love them in ways that are unnatural but are like Christ. Christianity is really not a theory. It's not a theology. It's not a philosophy. It's the transforming work and power of Jesus Christ in our lives. But the psalmist understands that we have a hard time with things like this. And we have a hard time truly embracing that God is in control and letting our lives be operated by that truth. We find it difficult, particularly when life feels like it's crumbling around us. And that's why when we come to verse 10, the author says, Be still and know that I am God. It's the only command in the whole psalm. Be still and know that I am God. And what's interesting is not a command to action, it's a command to inaction. You know, we want to say, well, let's go do something. God says, just stand there, be still. It's a command that I think brings us, gives us the ability to have this perspective about who God is and to get a true picture of God. One modern scholar translates this, this phrase, relax and know that I'm God. Another says, settle down and acknowledge me as God. That was in my mind last night as I was at the funeral home. I was in a, a side room as people were, were gathering and greeting the family before the service. And there was a couple there with a little girl, I would guess maybe 10 months old or so. And uh, they came into this side room off of where other people were. And this girl was running around the room and playing. I mean, she's just a bustle of activity, as you might well imagine. And it was fun to watch her and her parents chasing her around that space. Went into the service, came back out, and it was probably an hour or so later. And the whole, they were still there, but the situation had changed. They had uh, put her into her pajamas. And she, her mother was holding her, and she was laying against her mother's chest with her head in the crook of her mother's neck. Sort of like that. And as I was watching this, all of a sudden, I thought, you know, as a parent, there's not a lot better feeling than just holding your child like that. And I suspect that as a child, I don't remember it, but I'm suspecting as a child, that there's not much better feeling than just relaxing in the arms of your mother or father. And then I saw it. I think this is what the psalmist is talking about. Just to relax. Just rest. Just put your whole weight on God and let him hold you. And in his arms, you feel his heartbeat with yours. And we begin to understand a bit more of who God is. And we feel the security of being held by God who is in control of all things. And you know a little child when in its parents' arms feels safe. It doesn't matter what else is going on around the world. The child feels safe in its mother or father's arms. 
And I think God is calling us to come into his arms, just put all of our weight on him and feel safe. And I don't think this command is a command necessarily to silence. I think it's a command to engage God in the noise. I mean, when this little little girl last night was sleeping against her mother, there was all kinds of activity going on. But it didn't matter. She was safe. And this is not a call to remove ourselves from the world. It's not a call to say, if I could just get away from the troubles and the problems, everything would be fine. It is God's word to us to say, you just lean on me. You just let me hold you. And we'll make our way through all the stuff that's going on. And as we embrace him and we embrace the fact that he is in control and he's good and he's working in the world, he begins to fill us because we let him with his spirit of peace and love that becomes transformational in this world. There's part of me that wants to get to the end of this psalm and wish it were a a little less open-ended. You know, it just sort of sits there. But that's life, isn't it? Life is very open-ended. Life doesn't always resolve. In fact, a lot of times life doesn't resolve. And sometimes that makes us feel uncomfortable and insecure. It's in that moment that we remember God is in control. All things are in His hands. And He's calling us to put all of our weight on His shoulders. To rest in Him. To relax in Him. And to let our hearts begin to beat with his. How do we respond to the stuff that goes on in our world? Whether it's acts of terrorism against a nation or acts of pain that come against us. The same way God's people have been responding to evil through the centuries. By leaning on God who is with us. By declaring that God is in control. And by resting, relaxing, trusting Him. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to take some time to pray together. To pray for the people who are and have been most affected by 9-11. For our nation, for our world. And I think it would be appropriate for as many of you who would like, as many as you can, to, to pray this prayer in a spirit of humility that is often symbolized by kneeling. And so as we pray together, I would like to invite those of you who can and who would desire to, to come to the front, kneel at the altar, maybe kneel in the front chairs, as many as possible, to come and to kneel as a symbolic act of kneeling before our God, our Creator, and our Lord.
Mighty God, we declare today that you are in control of all things. We affirm your sovereignty. We declare that you are the only true God. On this memorable day that brings a sense of pain to so many, we ask that you would reveal yourself, your greatness, your power, and release your spirit upon all for whom this day is especially difficult and painful. We pray for the families of all who died in the attack and subsequent from it. For families who, ten years later, are still living with the pain and with the reality of these deaths. We pray that you will comfort them and help them to know the loving presence of your people and your presence. We pray for people who were injured, many of whom are still suffering from the horrors of that day. We ask that you will heal them. We pray that you will bring to them people and acts of grace and kindness that would encourage them and help them in the difficulties that they continue to face. We pray for the families of soldiers and civilians who have died in the wars and the subsequent attacks in response to this event. We ask, Father, that you would, you would comfort each of these families and those who feel the grief and the loss. We pray for people who live in, uh, in fear because they never know when a bomb may go off in that car or that market. And we ask, Father, that you would bring peace and that you would bring the Spirit of Christ into these settings. Help your people particularly to be a presence of hope and of love. We pray for the leaders of the world. We believe, as you have done through the centuries, that you desire to use the world leaders to bring about justice in this world. We ask, Father, that you will first of all help them to understand your definition of justice. And that you will help these leaders to make decisions that will relieve suffering. And that will move countries and peoples toward peace. And bring an end to the wars and the violence that human beings so often engage in. Father, we also pray for the people who have perpetrated acts of violence. Sometimes that's a difficult prayer for us to pray, but it's an important one. Help us to have hearts of forgiveness. Help us to be agents to help, to help people realize the love of Jesus, that Christ is the answer to the problems that they believe violence will solve. Father, you know our tendency to embrace vengeance and to harbor hatred and to judge. Father, we want to be wise about how we live, but we also want to be committed to justice and to love and to generosity 
And so we pray that you will use us individually and corporately to be agents of healing and of grace in this world that is so devoid of both. Father, we pray that you will help us as people who come to this place of worship to have a greater trust of you and of one another. We pray that you will help us as a body of believers to be known for our love and our generosity and our spirit of grace toward people who are in need. Give us the ability individually and corporately and the willingness to risk on behalf of peace. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you that ten years ago on that day you were present and you were at work and you have continued to be in the years since just as you were at work in all of the years previous. Father, give us a new vision of you and of you in us individually and corporately. And we pray this through the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his very life that we might live. It's in his name we pray. Amen.